turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, as we're going to campus this morning. It, it takes altitude to gain perspective. So when we moved to Round Rock several years ago, uh, we were moving from Seguin. And when we were leaving, there was a friend of ours, a member of our church there, that offered to give us a unique perspective of the city of Seguin. Uh, he wanted to take my family up in his airplane and just kind of fly and give us this bird's eye view of what the city looked like. And we were able to see, uh, we were able to see uh, Seguin High School is under construction. They have leveled the old building and they were building a new one in its place and we were able to see as it was being constructed. Um, one of the things that, if you're not aware, that Guadalupe River runs through Seguin and, and when you're on the ground, you can see you kind of feel like, well, it's a river. Rivers on the map, they just kind of do a straight line. But, but when you get up in the air, you, you actually look at it. That's not at all what uh, there's a picture there. It, it kind of is like more like a snake than it is a straight line. And we were able to get this perspective that we wouldn't have had if we only stayed on the ground. See, you, you gain perspective when you view things from above. And that's what we're going to do uh, here this morning out of 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, Peter, in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he's going to give us a view from the air so that we can gain some perspective of the things that are going on and what we're experiencing on the ground. Well, last week we began a series here in 1 Peter chapter 1. We acknowledge that one of the things that unites all of us in this room is that every single one of us has experienced some form of pain. Uh, maybe, maybe we suffered some sort of pain in our past that has uh, we still bear the scars today, or maybe we're walking through difficulty right now, or maybe we're experiencing hurt right now in our lives. We know that as believers in Jesus, that doesn't mean that we're going to be exempt from difficulty and pain and suffering. So Peter is writing this letter that we're looking at. He's writing this letter to a group of people who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus. They, they are suffering because they're choosing to associate themselves with Jesus, and and uh, the challenge is that for them, it would have been easier if they just decided that that I'll no longer be a Christian, or I'll, I'll no longer associate myself with Jesus, or maybe I'll just compromise a little. Their lives would have actually been easier. So, so Peter wrote to these hurting Christians, and he wanted to encourage them to stick with Jesus. Uh, the way that he does it throughout the letter is it, multifaceted, uh, but one of the things he really leans into is this identity, uh, this idea of identity. Last week we covered the first couple of verses of 1 Peter chapter 1, and we saw that, that this idea of identity is driving his encouragement. In, in the first two verses here, he reminds, uh, Peter reminds his audience, he says, you are elect exiles. You're, you're exiles. This world is not your home. You are sojourning here for a time. So the reason why you're experiencing difficulty and pain and suffering is because you are an exile. That's who you are. You don't belong here. Well, we're going to look at verses 3 through 5. And in these verses, Peter also leans into this idea of identity. He's just going to take it from a little bit different angle. So in these verses, Peter establishes the new identity of believers and then he proclaims to them what this identity guarantees for them. So we're going to look at this together. Why don't we go ahead and read those verses, and, and then we'll begin to kind of walk through it together. Now, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray, Father. We look at your word together and we uh, want to remind ourselves that it is your word. And we want to submit ourselves before the scripture because we want to submit ourselves to you. And I pray that you would use your word as a scalpel. And you would mend our hearts and shape our hearts so that we follow after you. Meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, we only covered the greeting, verses 1 and 2. But now we're going to begin the main body of the letters in verse 3. This is where, where the meat begins. Now, if you were writing a letter to some people who were going through a hard time, how would you begin? Uh, you, you likely would begin with condolences. I'm so sorry what you're going through. I recognize that it's a hard time. You might say something like, I've been there too. I want you to know I understand. You, know, you might say something like that. That's not how Peter begins his letter. Notice how he begins his letter in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He begins with praise. He begins with gratitude. Maybe that's instructive for us this, this morning. If, if you're walking through difficulty and pain and suffering, maybe the place you can begin is with praise and with gratitude. Of course that doesn't make the pain go away. Of course it still hurts. But maybe if we can gain some perspective, we'll be able to see how that's possible. What's the reason for this praise? The, the main idea of verses 3, 4, and 5 that we're looking at, the main idea is located there in verse 3 where, he, uh, where Peter says, He has caused us to be born again. That's the main idea. He has caused us to be born again. What is the reason that, that Peter is, is praising God the Father? The reason why is because he knows that his audience, they have a new identity. You have a new identity. The phrase, he has caused us to be born again, gives us the sense that we have a new origin that has been established by God. This idea, uh, this, uh, it's actually one word in the original language. He has caused us to be born again. One word in the original language. And that word doesn't show up anywhere else in the New Testament. But the idea of being born again actually does show up elsewhere in the New Testament. One of those places is John chapter 3. Uh, there's a really religious guy who, who shows up at, to speak with Jesus by night. His name is Nicodemus. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, I don't care how religious you are. I don't care how many boxes you can check. If you want to inherit eternal life, you must be born again. And Nicodemus doesn't quite understand. But, but Jesus says this to Nicodemus. Peter here is saying the same thing. But he's saying, you have been born again. That's why I'm praising God. So what does it mean 
to be born again. To be born again, that means that a miracle has taken place. A miracle has taken place. That's why Nicodemus was so confused by what Jesus said. He said, you want me to crawl back into my mother's womb? Like, you're not making sense to me, Jesus. He, he didn't understand. It's because a, a miracle has taken place. Here's what it means to be born again. Uh, the, the Bible uses all kinds of language. It, it'll say something like, uh, you have hearts of stone, but now you have hearts of flesh. Like your heart is mission control. That's why you do what you do, why you choose what you choose. And, and you have a heart that didn't want to obey God, that didn't care about the things of God. And then you were born again, and now your heart does. You have a brand new heart. You were dead, now you're alive. There was an old man, but he's gone, and now the new has come. This is the way that the Bible speaks of this regeneration. You have been caused to be born again. It is a miracle that takes place. You have a new identity. And, and this identity, uh, I noticed just from these verses, there's at least three things that are true about this identity. The first thing, the, it, the identity is new. This is a new thing that's happening. It's new in the scope of redemptive history. Uh, what I mean by that is, is this new thing that God has done in our hearts as believers in Jesus is not something that took place in the past. Something is different. We are not just like Jews rebranded, right? That's not, as believers in Jesus, we don't try to be as Jewish as we possibly can. No, that covenant has been fulfilled. There is a new covenant, and now God has done something in us that is new. We have a new identity. It's, it's new in the scope of what God's been doing uh, throughout history, but it's also uh, it's new in the sense that it diverges from your previous identity. Like our old selves are now dead, and God has created something new in us. We used to be outsiders to the promises of God. Like God's promise of eternal life. God's promise to be with us. God's promise to be for us and not against us. We used to be outsiders to those promises. But now, by faith in Jesus, those things are now true of us. We have a new identity. We are now the people of God. We were not the people of God before, but we are now. So that means our identity is new. And with that, our identity has new priorities and new values that are different from the priorities and the values of the culture that we find ourselves in. It's different. You want to know why you feel different from everyone else? Because... You are different from everyone else. You should be, as part of the people of God, you should be, so the things that we think are important are different from what our society and our culture thinks are important. And so, the way that we relate to one another, both in person and online, it should be different than the way that society relates to one another both in person and online. It should be different. Our tone of voice should be different. Our attitude toward things should be different. Our love for one another should be different. Listen, our hopefulness should be different. We obviously don't fit in. 
because of our identity. It's a new identity. It's not the same as it used to be. The second thing that I notice about identity is this identity is given. He says that, that God has caused us to be born again. The, the subject of the sentence, the, the one doing the action, is God, the Father. Verse 3 shows us that. He has caused us to be born again. Not believers. Believers don't cause themselves to be born again. God the Father does. Christians can no more give themselves a new identity than a baby can make itself be born. Baby August did not make himself be born. He, he played zero role in that. None. There's a, like a joke in my wife's family. Uh, I, I've been... Uh, Oh, I started dating when we were in high school. And so we've known each other a really long time. And I've been a part of her family for a really long time. And I knew her brothers when I could throw them in the pool, and now both of her brothers can throw me in the pool. That's how long I've known them. Uh, and there's this thing they do. Uh, they do like birthday dinner. Your family probably does something like this. They do birthday dinner. And when it's your birthday, that day you get to pick what we're having for dinner. And so you pick, and then Ellen's mom would cook the birthday dinner, whatever that was, whatever that may be, chicken strips, mashed potatoes, whatever it is, you pick it, and that's what we're eating. And the way the joke goes is like we'll be eating this meal as a family, and let's say it's her brother Sam's birthday or something, and he's chosen a meal, and inevitably, every time, your family does this too, uh, inevitably, every time, someone will say towards the end of the meal, Thanks for being born, Sam. What they mean is, I enjoyed this meal, and I'm glad you picked it. Happy birthday. But the way that it's phrased is as if he had something to do with being born. He actually did absolutely nothing. It's kind of something that happened to him. Listen, when it comes to your new birth, you have done nothing. Nothing. God is responsible for all of it. And that means that he's the one who gets the glory and the praise. So your identity is new. Your identity is given to you. And you're also your identity is the opposite of what you deserve. It's the opposite of what you deserve. In verse 3 it says, it is according to his great mercy. Mercy is when somebody doesn't give you what you deserve. You, you deserve wrath. I deserve wrath. We deserve wrath for our sin against God and nothing else. Anything we get besides wrath is God's mercy towards us. He's not giving us what we deserve. And, and He gives us this new identity. He has identified us as the people of God sheerly based on His mercy. Well, this identity also has several desired consequences. Several, several consequences. I, I, there, there's a, but there's a difference between like guaranteed and desired consequences. Guaranteed and desired. Um, so, as a preacher, I have several desired consequences. When I stand up here and preach, I, I hope that you listen to what I'm saying. I, I hope that you understand what I'm saying. I hope that you take it home and you think about it and you consider it. And then as you see what I'm saying is true coming out of the scriptures, 
You take what you believe the Bible is saying true based on what I've said. You take that and you apply it to your life. That is a desired consequence of my preaching. There's other desired consequences of my preaching. It's just kind of a personal value of mine that when I have the opportunity to teach the Bible, the people that are hearing me talk, what I really want is I want them to want to read the Bible more. I want them to love the Bible. I want them to see. Because I, I think that it's so beautiful and it's so powerful. I, it is a genius work of literature. And I want I want people who hear me talk about the Bible want more of the Bible. Um, so I want you to go home and read it. That, that's why I encourage you, 1 Peter chapter 1. Can you read one chapter? Just 1 Peter chapter 1, the same chapter, every single week for the rest of October. Can you do it? I know, I know you can. I want it. I think, I know that you if you read it, you will start to love the Bible more. That, that is a desired, a desired consequence. You know, as a church, one of the things that we find that's really, really important, one of, our, one of our values is that we want to do everything we do as having a scripture foundation. That, that's why when we stand up here and preach, we preach from the Bible. It's not a self-help book or, or our thoughts. We want to preach from the scripture. That's why all of our groups and all of our kids' studies, they're all, they're all based on the scriptures. We, we want to study the Bible, but everything we do has a scripture foundation. We, our schedule as a church has, is based on the Bible. We meet on Sunday mornings not because we want to or because we think it's a good idea. We both want to and think it's a good idea, but that's not the reason why we do it. The reason why we do it is because we believe that's what the Bible teaches, is that we must gather together. That's the reason why our, our uh, church is, is, um, is organized, the leadership is organized in a certain way. We have elders, not because we cooked it up and thought it was a great idea to have elders. No, it's because the Bible teaches us that, that the best way to uh, organize your church leadership is this idea of elders. We have a scripture foundation, and we want that to come through as we preach. That is a desired consequence, but there's a difference between a desired com- uh, consequence and a guaranteed consequence. Because there's no guarantee that you're going to go home and read First Peter chapter 1. And there's no guarantee that you're going to walk out those doors and, and give another thought to what we talked about in the There's no guarantee, I hope. But there's no, there's no guarantee. But when we think about this new identity in First Peter chapter 1... There are some guaranteed consequences. Guaranteed. There's actually three I want to point out to you. He, he says in, in verse 4, uh, or the end of verse 3, sorry, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. That, that word to is result. One result of the new birth is that you now have a living hope. you've ever walked through difficulty, if you've ever walked through pain and suffering, maybe you're doing it right now, one of the things that you need is hope. Because if there's not hope, you're going to roll over and quit. And so Peter says, well, you have that. You have that, that hope. You have that out in front of you as part of the people of God. But what do we mean by hope? People in our culture, we use the word hope differently from the way that the Bible uses word hope. When we use the word hope, we have like a measure of, of doubt. And I literally did this a second ago. I hope that you go home 
and what the Bible is not. But I'm not sure if you will. But, but I hope. You know, we, we hope for many things, and some will come true and some will not. I hope that the Cowboys will win the Super Bowl this year. That's something that is going to happen. There's clapping and there's kissing. There is, uh, that is something that will come true. But I, I hope that I get a nap this afternoon and that remains to be seen. That's the way we use this word hope. A biblical hope is different. Here's a, here's a definition of biblical hope. Warranted expectation. Warranted expectation. Uh, living hope is in contrast to dead hope. In contrast to vain hope. The reason that we can have hope in the future is because it is grounded, it is warranted in a historical fact. He says it in verse 3. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. It is historical fact. If we could do it, we could find the date on the calendar and the time. We could find it. It's historical fact. Because that really happened, then I can really have hope. That's the way that that works. Because Jesus really rose from the dead, that I can in fact have hope. And here's what that means. If I believe, if I know that Jesus rose from the dead, then that means that there is absolutely nothing that is hopeless. Nothing. Not one thing is hopeless. And so one guarantee of the new identity is a living hope. The, the second guarantee of Identity is, is something else. What are we hoping for? Look at verse 4. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the second guarantee that we see here is you have this living hope for what? For an inheritance. When I think about an inheritance, I think about, um, so I'm going to write a will, and I have these possessions, and I have these assets, and I want to leave them to certain people if I pass away. That's, that's what I, I want to take place. And so they receive this inheritance on the day that I die. Right? That's how that works. Uh, there's another way that inheritance is kind of used, especially in the scripture inheritance in those days. Uh, if you reach adulthood, you can often receive some kind of inheritance. We don't really do that much in our culture. But I think the best way for us to think about what Peter means when he says inheritance is that, uh, that people with a new identity can look forward to a future reward. That there is a future reward that is to come. And, and this future reward is given to the people of God. You know, there was a, a story about a rich man in Portugal who had no, no family, um, no children. So in the presence of witnesses, this, this man selected random people from a phone book. Uh, in the presence of witnesses, he just opened the phone book and pointed at him. He said, these are the people. On the day that he passed away, and they started giving away his property and assets and possessions, these people had no idea, and they thought they were being friends. It, it just showed up. They, they didn't know. So who, who, who gets this inheritance? Well, the people of God get this inheritance. The, the Old Testament people of God, the way they spoke of inheritance is God promised them a land. 
that, that the land of Canaan over there, they, that that would be their inheritance. And they did possess that land for a time, and then foreign armies came and took it from them. And it went away. And it was kind of fleeting to them They looked forward to this land of promise as their inheritance, but what about us? Is that what Peter is promising us, this inheritance? Well, what is it that he is promising us? Is he promising us money or possessions? Is that the promise of an inheritance? Well, that wouldn't make much sense to Peter's audience because they were suffering. And they were living in these, uh, this culture, this society, where the local government could just come take everything. You're a believer in Jesus, you don't get to have these things anymore in your hours now. And so for Peter to promise possessions and money and things, those things are fleeting. Those things could, could be taken from them. What Peter is doing is not promising them this kind of inheritance. Actually, what he's promising them is something in which they will not and will never be disappointed. He says here that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You know, the things of this world, the physical things that we have, those things are perishing and spoiling and fading, and they can be taken from you. But here, Peter's saying, that, that's not what I'm talking about at all. What I'm talking about for you is something that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Nobody can take it. God is keeping it and reserving it for you in heaven. That should encourage or hurt you. That should encourage you because it, it illustrates for you that your pain is temporary. Though it may last a long time, in the scope of eternity, your pain is temporary. And what he's saying is that your suffering is real, but you've got treasure that is to come. What is that treasure? That's, the, that's kind of the third thing in these verses that is guaranteed by the new identity. What, what is the inheritance? We have a living hope for an inheritance. What is that inheritance? He tells us in verse 5, Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What is the treasure that we hope for? Salvation. Salvation. What, what does salvation mean? It, it can mean several different things, kind of the way that we're depending on the conversation that we're having. I think most of the time when you and I talk about salvation, we talk about it as an individual. Like, I am saved from my sin. Jesus saved me from my sins. And that's my salvation. And that's one way we can talk about salvation. Another way to talk about salvation is like the grand big story of God's deliverance of his people from the beginning of time and his plan of salvation for everyone and really the whole universe. We can talk about on that broad scope. But there's another more kind of ground level use of this word salvation. And salvation can also just mean deliverance from your current circumstances. So, uh, for example, King David, he was running from the Philistines. And in Psalm 34, he, he asked God to save him. He's not saying God saved me from my sins. Not in that moment. What is he saying? He's saying, God, save me from these guys that were chasing me. Save me from them. Save me from my circumstances. And so I'm reading First Peter, and, and the temptation for us is to think, well, that makes the most sense. That, that what Peter is promising 
his audience is that God is going to save you out of your circumstances. You're walking through difficulty, but God's going to save you out of it. But listen to me. Unfortunately, that's not what Peter is saying. Peter is not promising that God's going to pull you out of your hurt. That God's going to pull you out of the circumstances that have got you suffering. He, he's not promising that God will do that. He might, but that's not the promise. Peter is promising future deliverance. He's not promising that you're going to see justice. That person who wronged you and, and they really need to see justice, he's not promising that you're going to see it with your own two eyes on this earth. But what he is promising is one day justice will be served. It is a future deliverance. Look, he says at the end of verse 5 that this salvation is ready to be revealed at the last time. At the last time, at the end of all things, when the Lord Jesus returns, He is going to deliver us from the wrath of God. That Those of us who place our faith in Jesus, we don't have to endure God's wrath. But He's also going to uh, execute justice. So the righteous, the people of God, will be vindicated, but the wicked will be judged. They may have escaped it on the earth, but there is a day coming when all that is wrong will be made right. That is the promise of future deliverance, of future salvation. But it's not a promise that we're going to be delivered out of our difficulty in this moment. The salvation that is promised is so much better than anything we could ever expect in this moment. And that may be hard, hard to swallow for many of us that are suffering now. But here's what I want you to know about this salvation. Number one, God provides the power. Look, it says in verse 5 that you are being guarded by God's power. You are being guarded by God's power. God guards believers for this salvation. It is passive. You didn't have anything to do with being born into this new family. Likewise, you don't do anything to keep yourself in this family. There's nothing you can do about it. You are being guarded for salvation by God's power. We are the people of God by God's power, and we remain the people of God by God's power. Let me say it a different way. Our future is secured because God's God. Nothing that has ever happened to you is outside of God's control. God has never been surprised by something that has happened to you. God's never wringing his hands wondering, oh no, whatever shall we do? He's never been surprised. You are never really in any eternal danger as long as God's got it. So we were flying in this airplane in the skies of Sikkim. And, and I gotta say, I don't do heights, though. You know, like this is, this is a little bit, you know, <laughs> Uh, we were flying in the skies of Sabine, and I was already on edge, you know. And so we're flying, this, this man, this, this friend of ours, his name's Milt, he, we're flying and he says, so I need you to keep uh, your eyes on the horizon to the east, uh, because, you know, there's an Air Force base in San Antonio, and uh, there's an auxiliary Air Force base right outside of Sabine, and the fighter jets do touchdowns on it. So I just need you to let me know if you see a fighter jet, just let me know. I'm like, man, this is not healthy. Fighter jets? Like, I, get me on the ground. But listen, 
That wasn't the thing that made me the most nervous. So we're flying around, gave us a tour, and, and we're headed back. And he says, put your hands on the, on the steering wheel. It's not a steering wheel, that's not what he said. I Googled it because I don't know anything about planes. It says it's called a goat. Those of you that know the answer to that are going to come up and tell me afterwards. He needs to know I'm going to call it a, a steering wheel. Uh, so put your hands on the steering wheel. So he's got one and there's one in front of me and I got my hands on it. He's like, okay, well, this is the way it feels on the right, this is the way it feels on the left, put the nose up, put the nose down. That's how it feels. And, and then Milk made a huge mistake. Because there's a little bit of silence. And then he goes, you're flying the plane. And I look, and this man has taken his hands off the steering wheel. And I am flying the plane. I'm like, Milk, put your hands back on the steering wheel. He's like, why don't you try to make it go left? No, sir. Sir, put your hands back on the wheel. Put his hands on the wheel. I take my hands off the wheel. Milk don't ever do that again. Get me off the ground. Listen. Listen. God has never taken his hand on the steering wheel. Not once. God's got it. God provides the power. He's got it. But here's the other thing I noticed about his salvation. Is that we do play a role for it's all him, start to finish, but we do play a role. It, it says right there that you're being guarded by God's power, and it says in verse 5, through faith. That's the role we play. We provide the faith. God provides the power. We provide the faith. Faith is, is a trust in God's word. God said it, so it must be true. It must be true. It must be so. If God, if God said it. But if you think about it, our only role in this whole process of salvation is faith. Our, our only role there is to admit that we can't, we can't do it. We, we can't help here. Admit that we are in need of, of God and trust Him to handle it. See, it's faith when we say, Lord, I'm suffering in difficulty. I am hurting, but I'm going to stay with you no matter what. That, that's faith. It's faith when, when times get tough and we don't quit on Jesus. It's, it's faith when, when we do the right thing, even though doing the right thing hurts us in the moment. That's faith. It, it's faith when we trust in God's promises instead of taking matters into our own hands and doing it our own way. That's faith. It's faith when we believe the gospel. I can't do anything to save myself. There's no amount of boxes to check that I can get it all right so that God will approve so I am saved by grace through faith. There is nothing I can do. It is faith. It is faith that believes the gospel, even though everything within us wants to try to just be better people to make God like us. That's not how it works. We are saved by grace through faith. So through faith, God guards us until that day when He makes all things new. So here's what Peter is saying. Praise God. You're, you're the people of God. You've been given a new identity. There's a guarantee that you, you have a, a living hope for an inheritance of salvation. So when you're on the ground and you're walking through difficulty and suffering and hurting, you, what you really need to do is, is gain some altitude. 
Get, get some, get some air so you can look down and you can understand what it is you're walking through. Gain, gain some perspective and look at things from the air. And here's, here's a couple of ways that I think that will help us uh, this morning. First, there are things that describe you and then there are things that define you. There are things that describe you, and then there are things that define you. As the people of God, as Christians, believers in Jesus, we have to refuse to identify ourselves as a sufferer, or as someone who's hurting, or as a victim. We do not identify ourselves that way. Those things may describe us, those things may be a part of our story and help tell our story, but those things do not define us. We don't despair. We don't walk around as victims. We remind ourselves we are a part of the people of God, and the people of God are going to suffer, but, but this is who I am, and I've been, I've been born into a new family, and I have this future hope that nobody else gets to have, so I refuse to identify myself as, as a victim. I'm part of the people of God. There are, there are things that describe you, and then there are things that define you, and don't get those mixed up. I am a child of God. And so, yes, I would really love to be relieved from my current circumstances. I would love that. But I understand that even if I'm not, I've got a future inheritance that nobody can take me. And second, we get this, we gain this perspective. We must be a joyful, hopeful people. We must. I can't speak for any other Christians in the world. All I know is our church. Our church, no matter what comes, we must be a joyful, hopeful people. We've got to gain that perspective. Fear, despair, hopelessness, cynicism... All of that is out of bounds for the people of God. All of it. We have to be a joyful, hopeful people. We have to be a people of optimism. We have to be a, a people who believe for better. We have to gain this perspective. We gain this perspective. We gain this attitude. That, that can change everything. That can change our relationships. That can change the way we interact with the people outside of the church. Gain this perspective and will shape our attitude. We must be joyful and hopeful. Well, I'd be remiss to ask one more question before we wrap up. And it's this. But are you born again? Are you born again? And then the follow-up is, how do you know? How do you know? We talk about the process. God does it all. But we have a role. It's through faith. So, so I was a youth pastor in Sabine before we came here. And, and one of the questions, and I don't think that's unique to the church. I was at it. It happens here too. Where, where kids go to VBS and they trust in Jesus at VBS when they're like six. But then they get to be like teenagers. I don't know if any of you have experienced this. You get to be a teenager and you... You know, now you're 15 years old, and then you go find your youth pastor, and you're like, 
I don't know what to think anymore. Because I was six years old when I trusted Jesus and got baptized, but I don't know if I was really meaning that or if I was, I was six. So I don't know if I'm a Christian. And there's this like moment of crisis of like, now what do I, what do, I do? I don't know if I'm a Christian because I don't know if that was real when I was six years old. And, and here's how I would respond to somebody who would say something like that. I can't go back in time and I can't see into your heart, so I don't know if you did in the six. And you want to know if you're a Christian. So here's my question. Do you trust in Jesus right now in this moment? Do you trust in Jesus? I don't know what happened back then. What about now? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus to save you? Have you been born again and how do you know? Are you trusting Jesus this morning? Are you trusting him to save you from your sins? You can't do it. You can't save yourself. Your only hope is to trust in the Lord Jesus. And if you are, you are a part of the people of God and these promises are for you. Let's pray.